This is The Reckoning. I'm Dan Gediman. Like many African Americans, the ancestors of Russ Bowles and Bridget Johnson were on the move in the years after slavery. Some stayed behind in Kentucky, but during the first two decades of the 20th century, the extended Sanders family left Henderson, Kentucky, and began to migrate north, hoping for better jobs, better schools for their children, and better lives. Russ Bold's grandparents ended up in Marion, Indiana, about an hour north of Indianapolis. And they did indeed find a better life there, with decent but still segregated schools for the kids and reasonably well-paying factory jobs for the adults, which allowed them to save up for a modest home that they could own instead of rent. But one thing they couldn't escape was the racial violence that plagued not only the South, but the North as well. The racial climate in Indiana was, was kind of intense. Russ says there was a lynching there in 1930 that he grew up hearing about in the 1970s and 80s. It was infamous throughout the rest of the country because of a photograph taken of two young black men hanging from a tree with a large crowd underneath them. The crowd looks festive, some smiling at the camera, a couple holding hands. The photo was published in newspapers around the country and inspired the song Strange Fruit, made famous by Billie Holiday. A lot of the family members still live there in Marion, and some of my cousins were cousins of the men that got lynched. So the family uh, tells about it. The lady that babysat us as children, one of her sons was one of the, um, the gentlemen that got lynched there in Marion. It was, it was a, a turbulent time in Marion, and um, the Ku Klux Klan was a, a very predominant part of that whole situation. Was the Klan still a, a, a tangible, visible presence in your youth? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Um, in my youth, the Klan was still predominant in, in Marion. You know, there were situations where uh, they set our mailbox on fire and, you know, trying to intimidate, um, you know, the people of color in Marion. So, yes, up until, you know, the, the 60s, the 70s, yes. This is the sort of history that black families might know, but is almost impossible to find in school curricula and has only recently shown up in our history books. Yet the evidence has been there all along in diaries and newspaper articles, letters and memoirs, even the congressional record. Hiding all along in archives, in libraries, and in the memories of those who lived it. This is The Reckoning. In the decades following the Civil War, bands of armed men continued to torment black Kentuckians. Homes, schools, and churches were burnt to the ground, and people were whipped, shot, raped, and killed. The mobs often targeted blacks who had started to accumulate property or were establishing businesses. For the men, there might be accusations of sexual assault or rape, but what they were really being persecuted for was not staying in their place. Historian George Wright is the author of Racial Violence in Kentucky. 
the consistency is it's tied to economics. It's taking something away from them, their land or a job, removing them as competitors. And always the way that you do that to then make sure few people question you is that you tie these things to black people being troublesome. The most easy way is that there's always an example brought forward of some black man trying to have an inappropriate relationship with a white woman. That tends to be the trigger. According to Ann Marshall, a history professor at Mississippi State University, sometimes it wasn't just individual black Kentuckians who were targeted for racial violence, but rather entire communities. There were numerous examples of racial cleansing in post-war Kentucky. Um, There was one in Henry County where I believe over 100 African Americans were driven out of the county. And this happened for various reasons. Some was that, you know, once African Americans had the right to vote, they posed a threat to results in local elections. Um, They could become politically powerful. And so they react to it in various ways, sometimes with these full-scale expulsions. Things reached the point that in March 1871, a group of six African-American men from central Kentucky sent testimony to a joint congressional committee about atrocities committed against black Kentuckians in the previous years. The committee was charged with investigating allegations of Ku Klux Klan activity in the former Confederate states. Kentucky was included because of disturbing reports of violence against African Americans, received by officials of the Freedmen's Bureau. Among the signers of the testimony was educator Henry Mars, brother of Elijah Mars, whose memoirs we heard from in earlier episodes. We, the colored citizens of Frankfurt and vicinity, do this day memorialize the condition of affairs now existing in the state of Kentucky. We would respectfully state that life, liberty, and property are unprotected among the colored race of this state. Organized bands of desperate and lawless men, mainly composed of soldiers of the late rebel armies, armed, disciplined, and disguised, and bound by oath and secret obligations, have, by force, terror, and violence, subverted all civil society among colored people. We would state that we have been law-abiding citizens, pay our taxes, and in many parts of the state our people have been driven from the polls, refused the right to vote. Many have been slaughtered while attempting to vote. We ask, how long is this state of things to last? After they read a formal statement, they began to list over 100 incidents of racial violence that had occurred in the state of Kentucky, including 34 lynchings, the murder of 22 men and women by mobs, and numerous beatings, whippings, and rapes over a four-year period. Smith attacked and whipped by regulators in Nelson County, November 1867. Colored schoolhouse burned by incendiaries in Breckenridge, December 24, 1867. A Negro, Tim Mocklin, taken from jail in Frankfurt and hung by mob, January 28th, 1868. Sam Davis, hung by mob at Harrodsburg, May 23rd, 1868. William Pierce hung by a mob in Christian, July 12th, 
1868. George Rogers, hung by a mob at Bradfordsville, Marion County, July 11th, 1868. Kadata Williams is a history professor at Wayne State University. When we look closely, what we can see is that most people are going to be attacked because they have made freedom work for them. They are upstanding people in their community. A large number of the lynching victims are actually landowners. And so their very existence as free people outside of slavery who have acquired land, acquired property, establishing their own businesses, establishing schools, etc., all of those things represent a threat to white supremacy. There was yet another method that white Kentuckians used to prevent African-American progress, something historian George Wright calls legal lynchings. There were instances of Kentucky white prominent citizens pleading with the mob in their community to not lynch a person, but allow the system to take its course. And they promised that the system would execute the person. And there are instances of where the black person pleaded guilty, knowing that the outcome would be death because if they don't do this, they would then be turned over to the lynch mob and at least the state would execute them by hanging most often, eventually electric chair, but the state would not cut off their fingers, uh, would not burn and torture them as part of putting them to death. Throughout this series, you may have noticed a common thread, a mismatch between what really happened in Kentucky and what generations of its citizens were told about it. This is especially true of the widespread racial violence we've been talking about in this episode. Until George Wright published his groundbreaking 1990 book, Racial Violence in Kentucky, which documents 353 lynchings, you would be hard-pressed to find mention of any of them in the state's history books. How did that happen? It turns out it's not an accident. It's evidence of a phenomenon known as the Lost Cause, which takes its name from an influential pair of books published right after the Civil War by Southern journalist Edward Pollard. They were called The Lost Cause and The Lost Cause Regained. The movement the book spawned celebrated the chivalrous culture of the South, downplayed the horrors of slavery, and explained the war as a battle over states' rights. It also promoted an alternate way of describing the conflict that just ended. For example, you shouldn't call it the Civil War. Historian George Wright. Kentuckians would say it's a war between the states, i.e. the northern states and the southern states. Another aspect of the lost cause is that while they could not deny that slavery was an important aspect of it, they would say that we're fighting for states' rights. 
and they could always come up with something that they disagreed, some laws by the federal government that Kentuckians would have an issue with. And so even though slavery ended, it does not change the narrative about slavery having been a good thing for the type of people who were enslaved. The lost cause was so effective that not only did this exist among the people of the generation who were involved in slavery and the Civil War, but it would continue for many decades thereafter. If one reads materials written in late 19th century Kentucky, it's hard to miss the evidence of the lost cause mythology. An example is the eulogy that Thomas Bullitt wrote on the occasion of his mother Mildred's death in 1879. He begins by talking about his grief over losing his mother, but then quickly turns to his grief over losing the way of life his family led before the Civil War. All this loyalty of slave to master is gone. All the protecting care of the mistress, all the authority of the master, are things of the past. We no longer hear the happy harvest song of the laborer in the evening, We no longer enjoy the unbounded hospitality of the Kentucky of old. We have accepted the results of the war, and we mean to go to the very best that we can attain. But when we look upon the breaking up of our beautiful homes, upon their desolation now, the iron enters our soul, and we feel in all its bitterness. Solitudinum faciunt pacem appellant. They make a desert and call it peace. Over time, former Unionists and Confederate supporters in Kentucky found common cause in their shared commitment to white supremacy and a nostalgia for a faded way of life. Historian Ann Marshall is the author of Creating a Confederate Kentucky. So this becomes not just a way of remembering the war effort and life before the war, but it also becomes a way of structuring life afterwards and of deciding what values white Kentuckians want to adhere to in the post-war era. And so the lost cause gets carried into the post-war era, not just as memory, but as a political statement. And it becomes a way of bolstering other kinds of white power And so because that appeals to most white Kentuckians, not just those who fought for the Confederacy, that's the the post-war memory that most white Kentuckians adopt afterwards. One of the most visible remnants of the lost cause ideology are the hundreds of Confederate monuments throughout the nation that are now the source of so much controversy. The group that spearheaded the drive to put up those monuments was the United Daughters of the Confederacy, commonly known as the UDC. The organization was founded in Nashville in 1894 and had a particularly active chapter in Louisville, where it published a monthly magazine called The Lost Cause. Louisville played an important role in facilitating the creation of many of these Confederate monuments. Patrick Lewis is a scholar-in-residence at the Filson Historical Society. There are national companies like the Muldoon Monument Company here in Louisville, which are mass-producing soldier-on-pedestal monuments um, that can be had for a relatively low fee and can be put on an L&N train and shipped anywhere across the South. According to Patrick Lewis, 
In addition to the Confederate monuments, one of the highest priorities for the UDC was education. They sought to educate young people with lessons about Southern heritage that were, in their minds, historically accurate and in keeping with their racial and political beliefs. They recognize that they have to train the next generation of white Southerners who did not grow up experiencing slavery, who did not grow up and experience the war, who did not grow up and experience Reconstruction. They have to tell them exactly what it was like, and they have to scare them sufficiently so that they never let something like that happen again, right? Like they have to, to reinforce to the next generation of white Southern children why it is important to maintain white supremacy. To accomplish this goal, the UDC launched a youth auxiliary organization called the Children of the Confederacy, which were organized by local UDC chapters. At their meetings, adult leaders would take the children through a pamphlet called the UDC Catechism for Children, which contained 64 facts that all members were required to learn by repetition, a practice they continue to this day. Here are just a few examples. What causes led to the war between the states? The disregard on the part of states of the North for the rights of the Southern or slaveholding states. What were these rights? The rights to regulate their own affairs and to hold slaves as property. How were the slaves treated? With great kindness and care in nearly all cases, what was the feeling of the slaves towards their masters? They were faithful and devoted and were always ready and willing to serve them. Another way that the UDC affected the way youth understood American history was to make sure that American history textbooks reflected their beliefs. Professor Ann Marshall. The Kentucky United Daughters of the Confederacy insisted on monitoring the textbooks that were used in state schools to make sure that they included what they called an impartial view of the conflict between the states, um, meaning they wanted to make sure that slavery wasn't seen as a bad thing, that states' rights disconnected from the issue of slavery was considered to be the cause of the war. Not only did the UDC get involved in monitoring the existing textbooks, they also worked at developing new textbooks that were in line with their particular viewpoint. This has been perhaps the UDC's most lasting legacy. Over a dozen of these UDC-sponsored textbooks were published in the first decades of the 20th century and remained in use in many southern states for decades. A new generation of Lost Cause-inspired history textbooks were published in the 1950s in response to the emerging civil rights movement, some of which were still in use well into the 1970s. Historian Patrick Lewis. These ideas are baked into the way that that Southern children, black and white, quite frankly, were taught about their past, were taught about their their capacities, were taught about what a, a good and just American Republic looked like. You think about when political leadership at certain points, say at the civil rights movement, um, you know, when those political leaders, mostly men at that time, were educated and what textbooks had they grown up with as 8 and 10 and 12-year-olds, and and how did that shape their response to African-American demands for equality and justice and the vote in the mid-50s or 60s? It appears that the UDC succeeded wildly in promoting their lost cause ideology. 
In 2011, a poll conducted by the Pew Research Center found that 48% of Americans thought the Civil War was mainly about states' rights, including 60% of those under 30, while only 38% thought it was primarily about slavery. Ricky Jones is the chair of the Pan-African Studies Department at the University of Louisville. And that's why I, I firmly believe that every state at this point, under some type of federal mandate and federal guidance with some of our best minds, need to go through curriculum reform. Really need to look at the K through 12 curriculum of every school system in this country and figure out exactly what's being taught to our children. Because a lot of what's being taught to our children reinforces that fiction, even in the 21st century. And, you know, it has been disturbing to sit down and talk to a lot of American history teachers at that level who are unknowingly, in some cases, reinforcing that fiction. They can't fill in the gaps. They haven't been taught it. They haven't learned it on their own. They've gone on about their lives and they're creating a yet another generation of, of students darker kids with inferiority complexes because they're being shot through that prism and, and white, white lighter kids with superiority complexes because they're learning this false narrative. I traveled from Louisville to visit the Sikh Museum in Russellville, a small city in southwestern Kentucky. This museum grew out of the vision and dedication of one man, Michael Morrow, who has been obsessed since he was a child with better understanding the history of his community. Hi there. How you go? Dan Gediman. Thank you so much for having me here. Uh -huh. The museum is made up of a series of small wooden houses spread out over a couple of blocks in the historic African-American neighborhood known as Black Bottom. In each house, there's a different exhibit. But I had come here to see one specific exhibit dedicated to a single event which happened in Russellville in the early 20th century. In the middle of the room was a sculpture of a tree, and hanging from the tree were four nooses. You're looking at a lynching tree that symbolizes the tree that the four men were lynched on in 1908 and probably another six or seven men had been lynched on prior to that. I tell people it's not a pleasant subject, but it's a necessary subject. It's one that we as a nation are going to have to start talking about. Uh, we're going to have to talk about how it affected America then and how it's still affecting America now. Logan County, where Russellville is located, had a history of lynching African Americans. Between 1883 and 1908, there were a total of 17 people lynched in the county, which is the second highest number in any of Kentucky's 120 counties. This particular lynching was triggered by a labor dispute. A black farm laborer named Rufus Browder got into an argument with his white employer, James Cunningham. Cunningham took offense at Browder's behavior and shot him in the chest. Browder pulled out his own pistol, shot back, and killed Cunningham. A black man killing a white man was not going to be tolerated by other white men in the county, so the jailer moved Browder out of town to avoid a mob taking him. Several days later, 
police raided a black lodge and arrested three men, John Boyer and brothers John and Virgil Jones, after the lodge had passed a resolution defending Browder in the Cunningham shooting. Already in the jail was Joe Riley, a black man who had been arrested on an unrelated matter. On the morning of August 1st, 1908, a mob descended on the jail, took all four men out and lynched them on the lynching tree. Um, they stayed there a few hours. They eventually took the bodies off the tree, laid them in front of the courthouse, and put them in Potter's Field. And someone left a note around the neck of Virgil Jones. And the note said, let this be a warning to you to let white people along with you go the same damn way. Your lodges and halls better shut up and quit. After we left the lynching exhibit, Morrow took me to his office. He began pulling out file after file of information about various lynchings that had happened in western Kentucky. There were dozens of them. It's hard to get anybody to understand what really went on. Whether they be black or white, unless you're a historian or a researcher, somebody that constantly deals with this kind of stuff. Man, it's, it's hard, it's hard, Richard. Uh, I found a newspaper article a couple of weeks ago. It's talking about here in 1867, there was a placard that's been put on the trees here in Logan County to tell blacks they better not get together in groups or they'd be killed. They better not speak out against nothing. They'd be killed. They better not say nothing bad to the white people. They'd be killed. You know, just what effect is that? You are quiet and you are hushed up. You can't say when you're angry. You can't say when you feel bad. The language on the signs was severe and threatened black people with penalties of a hundred lashes or even death. This could happen for breaking rules such as being out at night or simply being idle in the eyes of white people. The signs ended with the chilling words, I am everywhere. I have friends in every place. Do your duty, and I will have but little to do. Like I say, yeah, it, it, it gets to me sometimes, but I keep the faith. My faith is that more information is better, is that you get it out there. If you see it for yourself and you're honest with yourself, maybe we can see the same things. But I want you to see it for yourself. As Morrow and I walked through the neighborhood where the museum is located, he began to tell me about the pushback he received from some in Russellville when he began to put this museum together. A lot of white people don't want you to stir up old wounds, I guess you would say. They don't want to get these stories out there. And I was telling my nephew before he pulled up, it goes right against what a lot of blacks want. A, black, a lot of blacks want to know what happened, to open up, to understand why. Well, a lot of white people want this stuff shut down and closed out. It happened then. Who wants to think of their grandparents or their great-grandparents being murderers and burning people up and doing things of that nature? So there's a lot of guilt. But for us to heal as a nation, we've got to get these truths out there. We have to. Driving back from Russellville, I contemplated all I had learned about the state's history. The endless parade of outrages that white Kentuckians had perpetrated against black Kentuckians over the course of so many decades. The lynchings, the racial cleansing, 
using every means possible to keep African Americans down, keep them controlled, keep them from achieving the American dream. Then I flash forward to today and wonder how much progress we have really made as a state and as a country when it comes to how white Americans treat black Americans. Historian Kadata Williams. I think that the link between the past and the present in terms of African Americans' experiences and responses to racist violence is very clear. And what we see is a steadfast commitment to white supremacy and white people continuing to enjoy all of the rights and privileges that come with being an American or being in America. And so that line, that mindset is quite consistent. And that shapes not only the violence that African-Americans experience then, but the physical and economic and cultural violence African-Americans have experienced in the history after slavery. So chattel slavery ends But that commitment to subjugating them and to denying them access to all of the rights and privileges that come with being an American, that continued. And we see that manifested in housing, education, employment, treatment by the police, access to health care. All of those things are interconnected and they can be traced back to slavery. The Reckoning was written and produced by me, Dan Gediman. Our editor is Loretta Williams. Rhonda Rogers Van Dyke, our assistant producer, with production help from Nancy Rosenbaum and engineering from Cochin Tashiro. We had marketing help from Creative PR and legal assistance from the Dinsmore and SKO law firms. Our fact checker is Kathy Brady. Much of the music heard in the series, including our theme music, was composed by Jacory 1200 Arthur with additional music from the Artlist Music Library. Our voice actors were Susan Linville, Aaron Jones, Mark Foreman, Alec Voles, Jackie Blue, Keith McGill, and Robert Lewis Thompson. We had research help from Penn Bogert, Dave Morgan, Shirley Harmon, Tom Owen, James Pritchard, and Jenny Cole. Our series is produced in partnership with Louisville Magazine and Louisville Public Media. Our thanks to Josh Moss at Louisville Magazine and Stephen George and Erica Peterson at Louisville Public Media. Major funding for this series was provided by the Community Foundation of Louisville, the Norton Foundation, the Snowy Owl Foundation, Eleanor Bingham Miller, Emily Bingham and Stephen Riley, Victoire and Owsley Brown III, Nina Bonney, and Gil and Augusta Brown Holland. Special thanks to the Filson Historical Society, Dr. George Wright, and especially to Val Jones. Our deepest thanks to the Johnson, Bolds, and Stites families for letting us into your lives. If you missed any part of this series or want to hear additional episodes that dive even deeper into this subject, please subscribe to our podcast by visiting reckoningradio.org, where you can also find a detailed bibliography, free educational curricula, and over 100 oral histories of formerly enslaved Kentuckians. That's reckoningradio.org. Thanks for listening.